Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 39. Three stories from ancient Sparta. A messenger returned to Sparta from battle. The woman clustered around. To one, the messenger said, Mother, I bring sad news. Your son was killed by the enemy. The mother said, He is my son. Your other son is alive and unhurt, the messenger said. He fled the enemy. The mother said, He is not my son. A different messenger returned from a battle and was hailed by a Spartan mother. How fares our country? The messenger burst into tears. Mother, I pity you. He said, all five of your sons have been killed facing the enemy. You fool, said the woman. I did not ask of my sons. I asked whether Sparta was victorious. Indeed, mother, our warriors have prevailed. Then I am happy, said the mother. And she turned and walked home. Two warrior brothers were fleeing from the enemy back toward the city. The mother happened to be on the road and saw them running toward her. She lifted her skirts above her waist. Where do you think you two are running? Back here from whence you came. The most famous Spartan mother story is also the shortest. A Spartan mother handed her son his shield as he prepared to march off to battle. She said, come back with this or on it. That's the warrior culture. That's the warrior ethos. A Spartan colonel, a man in his 50s, was accused of accepting bribes in an overseas command. When his mother back home learned of this, she wrote him the following letter. Either quit your thieving or quit breathing. The warrior ethos embodies a certain virtues, courage, honor, loyalty, integrity, selflessness, and others. Now, most warrior societies believe must be included from birth. In Sparta, every newborn boy was brought to be examined for physical hardiness. If the child was judged unfit, he was taken to the wild gorge on the mountain, overlooking the city, and left for the wolves. We have no reports of mothers weeping or protesting. All right, so this is an excerpt from the book, The Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield. I read this book many years ago, so I decided I wanted to bring it up to the podcast. So the word ethos, if you're not familiar with the word ethos, its root word is ethics, I believe, but it is the characteristic spirit of a culture, error, community as manifested and its attitudes and aspirations, right? So the warrior class has ethos. That is their characteristic spirit, is their culture, and it's their sense of community, and it's manifested in their aspirations and what they do, right? So does the warrior spirit, what warriors do and what they live by is the warrior spirit. Now, in ancient Sparta, they were a warrior state. The whole state was basically warriors, And the women, the mothers, are the base of that culture. And as we're going to see in this next chapter, it is titled Woman First. It's still talking about ancient Sparta. So I'm going to continue. Let's flip the script. It says, Woman First. One scene from the book Gates of Fire has elicited more passionate feedback than any other. It's one where the Spartan king Leonidas explains what criteria he employed to select the specific 300 warriors that he would choose to march off with him and die defeating the pass at Thermopylae. Leonidas picked 
the men he did, he explains, not for their warrior powers as individuals or collectivity. He could as easily have selected 300 others or 20 groups of 300 others, and they all would have fought bravely and to the death. That was what Spartans were raised to do. Such an act was the apex of them, the warrior honor. But the king didn't pick his 300 champions for that quality. He picked them instead, he says, for the courage of their women. He chose these specific warriors for the strengths of their wives and mothers to bear up under their loss. Leonidas knew that to defend Thermopylae was a certain death. No force could stand against the overwhelming numbers of the Persian invaders. Leonidas also knew that the ultimate victory would be brought about, if indeed it could be brought about, in subsequent battles fought not by his initial band of defenders, but by the united armies of the Greek city-states in the coming months and years. And what would inspire these later warriors? What would steal their will to resist and prevent them from offering the tokens of surrender to the Persian king? Leonidas knew that 300 Spartans would die. The bigger question was, how would Sparta herself react to their deaths? If Sparta fell apart, all of Greece would collapse, and with her. But who would the Spartan themselves look to in the decisive hour? They would look to the women, to the wives and the mothers of the fallen. If these women gave way, if they fell to weeping and despair, then all the women of Sparta would give away too. Sparta herself would buckle, and with her, all of Greece. But the Spartan women didn't break. They didn't give way. The year after Thermopylae, the Greek fleet and the army threw back the Persian multitudes. The West survived then in no small measure because of their women. The lioness hunts. The alpha female defends the wolf pack. The warrior ethos is not at bottom a manifestation only of male aggression or of the masculine will to dominance. Its foundation is society wide. It rests on the will to resolve the mothers and the wives and daughters and the female warriors as well, to defend their children, their home soil, and the values of their culture. So women have played a big role in the warrior culture throughout history, especially in ancient Sparta, where the women were the foundation, they were the rock of the society. If the mothers, wives, and daughters of the warriors that died in battle were to fall into despair, not only would Sparta fall, but all of Greece would fall. That was the understanding. Now, even today, when you look at the world wars that we had, where we sent men, fathers, husbands, and sons off to war through the draft, who stayed at home and filled those jobs? Who stayed in home and filled those factories and started working and making things happen back at home. It was the women, right? Now, today, we have women on the battlefield that are taking up arms and doing amazing things on the battlefield. In the wars like Iraq and Afghanistan, where the whole country is a war zone, women had roles as truck drivers, Humvee drivers, machine gunners, MPs, whatever. Every time that they would go out of the wire, they could possibly find themselves in a combat situation, and many of them did, and fought bravely and fought heroically along their male counterparts. All throughout history, women have played an integral role in the warrior class, right? All right, so I'm going to continue. Let's move on. It says, East of Eden. Where did the warrior ethos come from? Why would anyone choose this hard, dangerous life? What could be the philosophy behind such a choice? The answer may come from the Garden of Eden. 
God sets up Adam and Eve in paradise where all their needs are met without fear. But he warns them, don't go near that tree in the center of the garden. Of course they do. The mother and father of the human race choose to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they choose to become human. They acquire the quality of consciousness that, until now, has been the possession of God alone. God kicks them out into the land of Nod, east of Eden. And here is the curse he lays upon Adam and Eve. Henceforth shalt thou eat thy bread and the sweat of thy face. In other words, from now, you humans have to work for a living. No more picking fruit from the free trees. From now on, you have to hunt. You have to chase wild animals. You have to kill them before they kill you. Adam and Eve became the primitive hunting band. The hunting band became the tribe, and the tribe became the army. The warrior ethos evolved from the primary need of the spear-toting, rock-throwing, animal-skin-wearing hunting band. The need to survive. The need could be met only collectively as a group working in unison. To bind the band together, the ethos evolved a hunter's ethos. Every warrior virtue proceeds from this. Courage, selflessness, love, of the loyalty and to one's comrades, patience, self-command, and the will to endure adversity. It all comes from the hunting band's need to survive. At a deeper level, the warrior ethos recognizes that each of us as well has enemies inside himself, vices and weaknesses like envy and greed, laziness, selfishness, the capacity to lie and to cheat and to do harm to our brothers. The tenets of the warrior ethos directed inward inspire us to contend against and defeat those enemies within our own hearts. So as I've said many times that we are all warriors of something. We are all fighting some type of battle, whether it's within ourselves or it's outside forces. We are all descendants of some type of warrior class. It's in our DNA. Every single one of us has it. For thousands of years... Our ancestors were fighting battles, hunting, doing what they had to do to survive. So that it is in our DNA. So let's continue. Let's flip the script. All right. So this is, uh, this is titled The Lord of the Battlefield. Alexander the Great, toward the end of his life, frequently stayed up all night sacrificing to the god fear. Why? All killing was of necessity done hand to hand. For a Greek or Roman warrior... To slay his enemy, he had to get so close that there was an equal chance that the enemy's sword or spear would kill him. Be brave, my heart. Plant your feet and square your shoulders to the enemy. Meet him among the man-killing spears. Hold your ground. In victory, do not brag. In defeat, do not weep. The ancients resisted innovation of warfare because they feared it would rob the struggle of honor. King Agus was shown a new catapult, which could shoot at a killing dart of 200 yards. When he saw this, he wept. Alas, he said, valor is no more. The god who ruled the battlefield was Phobos, fear. So that's interesting. Um, one of the ancient gods that they had was called Phobos, fear. That's where the word phobia comes from, a fear of something, right? That's interesting. Anyway, so one of the things that the author says here is how when their ancients would resist new type of warfare technologies because they were afraid that it would replace honor. And we see that today too. We see 
that anytime there's something new that is introduced, it's always met with resistance. When the innovation of the airplane came, we saw our military was Mm -hmm. resistant of using airplanes for anything else more than troop transports or cargo transports. They were not... They, there was a group of people that did not want to use planes to drop bombs or to put machine guns on and to fight in the sky. When tanks started being rolled out, there was a group of people that didn't want to replace tanks with the cavalry. And they said, no, our horses could get to places that the tanks can't. And those who did not adapt, they got destroyed on the battlefield. Anytime that there is a new type of technology or innovation, it is always going to be met with resistance at first because human nature is to resist change. For whatever reason, even if it's going to work better, even if it's going to improve the lives of your men or whoever, even if it's going to improve everything, it's always met with resistance at first. And we see that in warfare as well. We saw that with the battleships. We saw that with submarines we saw that with even gunpowder guns there's always met with resistance all right the instinct of self-preservation some say that self-preservation is the strongest instinct of all not only in humans but in all animal life fear of death the imperative to survive nature has implanted this in all living creatures the warrior ethos evolved to counter the instinct of self-preservation against all natural impulse to flee from danger, specifically from armored or organized human enemy. The warrior ethos enlists three other qualities, shame, honor, and love. The concepts of shame, honor, and love imply moral judgment, right and wrong, virtues and vices. The natural evolution spawned instinct of the self-preservation becomes viewed within the context of an ethical code and indicated as wrong evil, cowardly, and depraved. Its opposite courage is judged by the same code and declared to be good, brave, and honorable. A Spartan king was once asked what was the supreme warrior virtue from which all other virtues derived. He replied contempt for death. Courage, in particular, stalwartness in the face of death must be considered the foremost warrior virtue. A detachment of Romans was cut off in a waterless place. The enemy commander demanded their surrender. The Romans refused. You are surrounded, declared the enemy captain. You have neither food nor water. You have no choice but to surrender. The Roman commander replied, no choice. Then have you taken away as well the option to die with honor? The dictionary defines ethos as the moral character, nature, disposition, and customs of people or culture. Ethos is derived from the Greek root as ethics. The warrior ethos is a code of conduct, a conception of right and wrong virtues and vices. No one is born with the warrior ethos, though many of its tenets appear naturally in young men and women of all cultures. The warrior ethos is taught on the football field in Topeka and the mountains of the Hindu Kush and the lion-infested plains of Kenya and Tanzania. Every honorable convention has its shadow version, a presido or evil twin manifestation in which noble principles are practiced, but in a dark side, system that turns means and ends on their heads, 
the mafia, and criminal gangs live by rigorous and sophisticated codes of loyalty, discipline, and honor. So do terrorist organizations. Does that make them warriors? Do these groups practice the warrior ethos? When is honor not honor? To answer this, we must consider the nature of tribes. What are the societal, cultural, and political characteristics of tribes? First, tribes are hostile to all outsiders. This has been true of virtually all tribes in all parts of the globe and in all eras of history. Tribes are perpetually at war with other tribes. Tribes practice the primacy of honor. Tribes are governed not by the rule of law, but by the code of honor. Tribal codes mandate the obligation to revenge. Any insult to honor must be avenged. Tribes prize loyalty and cohesion. Tribes revere elders and the gods. Tribes resist change. Tribes suppress women. Tribes value the capacity to endure hardship. Tribes are patient. Time means nothing to the tribal scheme. Tribes will wait out invading enemy till he tires and goes home. You've got the watches, say the Taliban, but we've got the time. Tribes are tied to the land and draw strength from the land. Tribes fight at their best in defense of home soil. Tribes are adaptable. They will take on any shape or correlation temporarily if it will help them survive in the long run. Tribes will ally with the enemy tribes to repel a greater threat of an invader, then go back to killing one another once the invader has been driven out. There is much to admire in these qualities. In fact, a strong case could be made that what the U.S. military attempts to do in training its young men and women is to turn them into a tribe. Certainly, it's not hard to understand why tribes all over the world make such formidable fighting forces. But the tribal mindset possesses two potentially dangerous attributes, which can make its practitioners prey to what might we call shadow tribalism or a criminal tribalism, particularly in the postmodern and anti-tribal world. First, tribes exist for themselves alone. An outsider, unless he falls under the obligation of hostility, is not considered a human being in the same sense that a tribal member is, and is not protected by the same notions of fellow humanity. Tribes are the original us-versus-them entity. When this aspect of honor culture is grafted onto a criminal, political, or extremist religious doctrine such as the the Mafia, the Aryan Brotherhood, or Al-Qaeda, the easy next step is to dehumanize and demonize the enemy. The warrior ethos, on the contrary, mandates respect for the enemy. The foe is granted full honor as a fighting man and defender of his home soil and values from Cyrus through Alexander to the Greeks and the Romans. Today's enemy was considered tomorrow's potential friend. The tribal mindset has no trouble embracing the concept of asymmetrical warfare and pushing this to its limits, meaning terrorism and beyond. If the enemy is bigger, stronger, and more technologically advanced than we are, says the mob ganger terrorist, then we are justified in using any and all methods to strike him. A criminal and the terrorist organizations practice tribes like codes of honor, but they do not practice the warrior ethos. They are shadow tribes. They are not warriors. In the practice of terror, in fact, a terrorist organization uses the enemy's embrace of the warrior ethos against him. How? by violating the honorable tribal warrior code in the most shocking and extreme manner, striking civilian targets, using women and children as human shields, etc. A terrorist's aim is to 
outrage and appall the sense of honor of the enemy and that the enemy concludes these people are friends of madmen and decides either to yield to the terrorist demands out of fear or to fight the terrorist by striking to his moral level. Now, what would Leonidas think of waterboarding? How would Cyrus look upon practice of suicide bombing or video beheadings on YouTube? So we just covered the difference between tribal extremism, terrorist organizations, criminal gangs, and the warrior class. So although you have criminal enterprises and terrorist organizations that uphold some of the virtues of the warrior spirit, they themselves are not warriors because they do not live by the warrior ethos. As we saw what ISIS did when they would put young girls into cages and set them on fire or tie a person's hands behind his back and blindfold him and have a bulldozer roll over him, recording beheadings and sending them out to the interwebs, dehumanizing and demonizing their enemy, showing them no honor. They are not warriors. They are shadow tribes, as the author has laid out here. All right, so that's going to be it for today. We're going to stop here. Um, the next podcast, I'm going to pick back up with the Gulag Archipelago, and we're getting into that. I chose to do this one because it was quick. There's still some more to cover on that. So after I'm done with the Gulag Archipelago, I will be jumping back. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. Send these videos out to your friends. Spread the word. And I'll see you again on the next podcast. This Flip the Script podcast out.